Lucky Glasses production on the Osiris Podcast Network. Welcome to the latest edition of Dead to Me. I'm going to keep this intro short because we have a hell of a lot of show to get to. But I wanted to take the opportunity up front to say thank you on behalf of all of us at Dead to Me for the amazing response to our little podcast. It's been great hearing from so many of you on social media and email, and I encourage you to keep it up. If you haven't already followed us on Twitter and Facebook, our handle is Dead to Me Pod. And be sure to sign up for our newsletter at deadtomepod.com. I promise we won't steal your identity. We might steal your face, though. One thing that a lot of you have asked about is the music used on the show. Well, I wrote and performed the intro, and most of the interstitial music you hear is also stuff I've composed and recorded. The response has been such that we'll be putting out a special collection of music used on Dead to Me before the end of Season 1. In the meantime, you might want to check out my long-running project, The Contrarian. There's plenty of stuff available to hear at thecontrarianmusic.com. And again, thank you so much. Which brings me to the theme of this episode. As a musician, I came out of the punk, hardcore, and metal scenes. And I've often wondered how many closet deadheads there are in those scenes. And whether the dead and its community may have more in common with punk than we might expect. We've got not one, but two guests to talk about all that. Michael Brunetto is a musician who has played on projects with Maritime Pilot and Gas Kill. The latter did a re-recording of Black Flag's My War, which is appropriate because members of Black Flag are actually deadheads. We've also got Jay Coyle, founder of Music Geek Services, with us. Jay helps established and developing artists with direct-to-fan strategies, and he's also an instructor at Berkeley Online. And of course, he's a musician and an old-school punk rocker. Jay will educate us on how the Dead's pioneering DIY ethos informed later musical movements. That's uh, a lot of strands to keep in my head, man. A lot of strands in the old duder's head. So let's check in with my co-host to get a handle on this thing we're calling Punk is Dead. Eduardo, let's do this. So we're talking about the Grateful Dead and punk, but we're also talking about more than punk. We're talking about other scenes like hardcore, alternative, and metal, which at first blush seem to have absolutely nothing to do with Grateful Dead culture. As a matter of fact, one of the things that sticks in my mind is seeing Kurt Cobain wearing a t-shirt that said, kill the Grateful Dead. Yeah, which he wore proudly, right? Totally. From the standpoint of the ethos of grunge, the dead would probably have seemed excessive and, and commercial and kind of bloated to Cobain at the time. Although I'll just point out that it's funny to me that uh, I think I went back and listened to Nevermind within the past, I don't know, three or four years. Right. And I was astonished by how much closer to hair metal it is <laughs> than to anything that I now think of as punk rock. You know, I said that even back then. There's a lot of lip gloss on that record. Yeah. I think a lot of it comes down to the production by Butch Vig, which is why I always want to put on In Utero instead, because I think it's a much more accurate representation of what the band sounded like. Mm -hmm. But again, that's like the most depressing record of all time. Right. So I never know what Nirvana album to listen to, you know? (laughs) I could put on Bleach, but this is like super adolescent. Which is cool. So I guess I just put on Europe 72 again. I think the Kurt 
shirt was kind of reinforcing the tribalism in the music scenes, at least at the time. But I've always wondered, like, do punks really hate the dead or are they just annoyed by deadheads? I think it's an excellent question. You know, I think we both talked a little bit about how just for different reasons, we each bought into that kind of tribalism and the idea that there's a line you sort of don't cross here. Right. I remember in college, um, like um, being in like a hacky sack circle wearing Doc Martens and someone being like, are you allowed to do that? Is that something... Uh, are you allowed to kick a hacky sack wearing Doc Martens? Birkenstocks only. Because <laughs> both scenes, the punk scene and the dead scene, seem to promote inclusion, but it can be very alienating if you're not already initiated. Yeah. They're not these scenes that you sort of like walk into and you're immediately like welcomed and greeted and, and loved. They're sort of, right. you know, people want to know that you're there for the right reasons. And I think that's what sets some scenes apart from others, right? So, sure. I mean, I mean, I think metal has its gatekeepers, but there isn't really a central ethos driving that in the same way that I was trying to think of other scenes that I think are categorically different. And so, you know, raves, there wasn't really a political basis for that. It was just a bunch of people getting together in a warehouse and and sort of wanting to do a bunch of drugs together. Yeah. And I think with the dead too, even if it wasn't, you know, on the surface, there was clearly a sense that these were the freaks getting together and they were getting together for a sense of belonging. and, and, Mm -hmm. And what they really wanted to do was to go out there and affect change in the world. Yeah, and over time that can get stratified and dogmatized and it can lead to more narrow thinking within those scenes till eventually you get to Kurt Cobain wearing a bitchy t-shirt. But when you look under the hood, the Grateful Dead actually do have a lot of things in common with a certain punk mindset. You know, for example, their embrace of anarchism, which you and I have talked about as an organization principle. Mm -hmm. And that's something that is not only embraced by the Grateful Dead, band members and folks in the community, but also people in hardcore and punk scenes. Yeah. Before DIY was a thing, the dead were doing it themselves. Yep. If there was something that the band didn't like about the way the music business worked, they would just sort of wonder, well, is there a way for us to do this better? Totally. I mean, these guys ran their own record label. They ran their own ticketing service. There's certainly something there about scale too, right? I remember in high school, it was very in vogue to say like that Fugazi were sort of on their last legs because they were playing more shows away from DC than in DC. And that was sort of a death knell for the band or something. But you could certainly imagine um, some uh, kind of Bay Area heads saying the same thing in the uh, mid-70s or something. Yeah, and that's exactly what they did when the Grateful Dead grew out of their original hate ashbury scene and became a national touring concern. There were a lot of people who felt like they were losing their special neighborhood band. But I think that happens with a lot of scenes as they grow and mature. People have different views of what they mean. Mm-hmm. And I definitely think that with punk in particular, there's an entire range of notions about what punk is and what it should mean. And maybe one of those perspectives can include the Grateful Dead as a punk band of some kind. The Grateful Dead's default posture was not loving, warm, or even happy. It was much more like a sneer. Exactly. And, you know, that attitude to me just seems very much aligned with Johnny Rotten and with a number of other sort of punk luminaries whose first attitude is kind of like detached, cynical irony. Yeah, I think you see that everywhere in punk's first wave. There's even a shared inspirational aspect here. The original punks from New York City were influenced by the Beats and so were the dead. Patti Smith was a huge fan. Yeah. Mick Jones from The Clash apparently likes the dead. And if I'm listening to a band like Television, they definitely ring some dead bells for sure. Mm -hmm. So is that a coincidence? I mean, it always seems like the punks with some musical skill. 
Well, there is sort of that bohemian lineage that I think television absolutely embody and that the dead are not as associated with unless you sort of know the overlap with the beats and the early Kesey kind of stuff. The other thought I have is, you know, you go back and you listen to the Velvet Underground, that bootleg series, the Robert Quine tapes, I think. That's a jam band. (laughs) That's a jam band playing. No doubt. I've often speculated that when the dead first made it to New York City, that there were maybe folks like Robert Quine or Patti Smith who were instrumental in establishing the original idea of punk rock, that they were in attendance at those dead shows. I mean, there's no doubt that the band woke up a lot of East Coast heads around that time. I'm really glad that we can have this conversation because I feel like having this conversation in 1993 would sort of be sort of profane. (laughs) Fuck you, Kurt. Um, And I kind of credit not only people in our age group, but the kids coming up behind us. There's this great quote somewhere from, um, it might have been Lee Ronaldo or someone, where, where he was talking about playing with someone much younger. And he sort of said, you know, to them, The Clash and Michael Jackson exist on the same plane. You know, it's not like you have to choose one or the other. Right. And Lee Ronaldo from Sonic Youth, of course, is a deadhead. It's not a coincidence. As you progress along the musical timeline, the dead influence seemed to reappear in the 1990s, and not just with the Neo Jam acts like Fish, but bands that originally came out of a more punk-oriented underground, like Jane's Addiction or mm-hmm. even Sublime. You know, you would catch a, a deadish vibe here and there. Apparently, Anthony Kiedis and Flea from the Red Hot Chili Peppers first bonded over the dead. Yeah. We talked about members of Sonic Youth being fans. Mm-hmm. There's also Kurt Kirkwood from the Meat Puppets, who is a massive head, and he claims that the dead were actually key to his fundamental musical development. And another fun fact about the Meat Puppets, the drummer, Shandon Som, is the son of the late Doug Som, who was a cornerstone of the Jerry Garcia band. So, like, what's the story here? Did everyone in the 90s just start taking acid again, or is there more to it? Well, it feels like they did, because I'm thinking of bands not only, as you suggested, the sort of neo-jam band scene, but, you know, there's some forgotten bands like I, Mother Earth. Yep, I remember them. Shannon Hoon, of course. There's a lot of ways in which the early 90s felt closer spiritually to the 60s than they did to the 80s or the 2000s. Yep. Well, think about the band Caius that birthed Queens of the Stone Age. Yeah. Those guys would drive out into the desert and set up generators and just do these kind of like multi-hour long epic jams, which, you know, they were playing essentially metal music, but the organizing principle was the same. Go out somewhere weird where the freaks can hang together and take a bunch of acid and we're going to soundtrack this until the sun comes yeah, up. Yeah, clearly spiritual heirs to everything the dead did. Yeah. So I wonder about nowadays, though, do today's punk kids still hate the dead? You look at the recent tribute album, Day of the Dead, and it seems to suggest that anyone can embrace this music now. There's a lot of garage punk and psychedelic and post-punk and indie acts. Mm-hmm. In addition to The National and Real Estate and Kurt Vile and Stephen Malkmus and His Golden Messenger and yeah. you know the more experimental bands like Anthony and Perfume Genius and Tim Hacker. And then just last week, Ty Siegel put out an EP Ty Siegel, the punkish, psychedelic garage kingpin of now, Mm -hmm. he put out an EP that includes a cover of St. Stephen. So I'm wondering, like, have the walls finally come down? I hope so, because I feel like that's a better way to approach music, right? You know, it turns out that you're sort of fed this version of tribalism and culture. And as a young person, there are probably reasons to want that, right? Because it helps form group identity. It helps it helps your individual identity kind of emerge too. But certainly as you get older, it just seems so small and minor in hindsight. But it does make me wonder, like, what would Kurt Cobain say about this? I always hoped that, um, not that I'm a particularly spiritual or religious person, but I always hope that if there is some place where like life goes on after you die, like I would really love to see Garcia and Cobain talking about lead belly. Yeah. I just think that has to be happening somewhere. 
Our next guest is someone I admire for his commitment to helping musicians navigate a rapidly changing landscape in music. Jay Coyle is the founder of Music Geek Services, which equips artists big and small with the tools and strategies to develop direct relationships with their audiences. In other words, DIY. And these days, all musicians have to embrace DIY to some extent. At Music Geek Services, Jay has worked with the likes of Veruca Salt, Bare Naked Ladies, Sloan, the Presidents of the United States of America, Carbon Leaf, and a great many others. Jay is also an instructor at Berkeley Online, where he shares his expertise in getting shit done. So who better to talk to about the DIY spirit across eras? And here's a bonus point. Jay is also a drummer who was in an old school punk band from Athens, Georgia, called The Violets. And we just heard a bit of one of their songs, which happens to be called I Hate the Grateful Dead. So first off, Jay, do you still hate the Grateful Dead? Oh, that's so funny. I have to be honest that there was actually a moment where I was asked to join that band. We joked that I was like the 16th or 17th drummer or something, but I was just the third drummer. But when I joined, I actually told the guitarist, hey, like, I like the dead. Oh, you were already a stinking hippie. <laughs> Here's the whole reason why I, I was like burning to tell you the story because in me joining that band was the dichotomy that carries me all through to 2018. And that reality is the fact that there's always been this battle inside me that I really admire everything that Dead stood for in their time. Right. But as we got into like the mid to late 80s, I was deep into punk. You know, I loved playing punk music in bands. I loved classic true Ramones, mm -hmm. Clash, Stiff Little Fingers, The Jam. These were my kind of punk bands, The Damned. Yeah. And the guys that I I fell into this band the violets that's why we connected with each other but i actually was like i can't ask them to be their drummer because like i like the dead but <laughs> that's the reality that i came up from in upstate new york in rochester new york where my high school was littered with deadheads and the reason why i got along with the guys in the violets and actually the reason why the song was written ironically the song is not truly about the dead right. it is truly about the fans of the dead and the culture that i was always going i don't want to wear patchouli and i don't want to like not wash and i don't want to have to know where my next meal's coming from yeah so 
that was the ethos that my band had. We were like, we don't want to support what we deem to be kind of stoner and dropout mentality of the dead. Right. And so as I joined the band, like we all admitted that I think there was four of us in the band. I think two of us had been to more than one show Ooh. and the other two were basically like, yeah, I don't, I don't hate the dead. It was <laughs> more a, how do we pinpoint the negativity that we have towards townies in Athens that were the unbathed kind of like, hey man, it's groovy. And our issue was that they were stuck in the 60s culture uh-huh. that we just did not have anything connecting us to that. Uh-huh. I've come to find out that that's actually a fairly common perspective with punk and hardcore people. Yeah. And it's funny is I now work with the band Sloan, right? Yeah. And they have a lyric in the song. It's not the band I hate. It's their fans. That's right. And when I first heard that in 94, I think, or 95, it's a, a song off the re- second record, Twice Removed. That was exactly what we were saying in I Hate the Grateful Dead. It rang true. And of course, we were, we were young, stupid college kids trying to be offensive on purpose. That's why the cover <laughs> of the single, the front cover is Lee Harvey Oswald getting shot, right? Ooh. But it's Garcia's head superimposed over, <laughs> over his... Wow, well, there is a grand tradition here. You know, Mojo Nixon had that song, Bring Me the Head of Jerry Garcia. Yes, yes. And I think a lot of people took the piss out of the Grateful Dead, you know, just because they could. And to be honest with you, if you're in the Grateful Dead, there are probably times where you hate being in the Grateful Dead as well. Yeah. Especially after all the success that came with Touch of Grey. You know, they look out into the audience and it's no longer the freaks at the acid tests. Right. It's these hooligans that are crashing the show. But it also seems that even people who are like dyed in the wool punk or metal people, lifers, it seems like if they live long enough, they eventually become deadheads. I mean, I look around at my peer group and I'm often like, how did we end up here? Is that your experience too? It's funny you say touch of gray because touch of gray was that moment where I knew I was a senior in high school, 1986, and I remember vividly all of my friends who would kind of diss me for the punk that I listened to, and I, at the time, R.E.M. was my favorite band, yeah. still is, and that's why I went to Athens, Georgia in the first place. So I was totally a, a music nerd, hence the name Music Geek Services. Right. But like, I remember when it became the norm. It was like, oh, the dead have a new record out. And oh, it's Touch of Grey. It's all over MTV. It was unreal. It's like, oh, shoot. Now everybody's going to like the band. <laughs> but to your point, yes, I find that the older we get there is a point at which you have to look at the band as a performing entity. They truly did get on stage, and no one sounds like they do. Now, granted, there's tons of bands that will try to emulate it. There's tons of jam bands and all that. But it's like they lived and breathed it from day one, and that's where I think a lot of the respect comes from. Yeah, no doubt. And then also, it's funny you mentioned you know, my Berkeley Online classes. I teach music marketing and music business, and in both of those classes, I always go back to the dead and say, look, the dead is a touch point of understanding how to mobilize a fan base and more importantly how you can be counterculture and how you can almost stick it to the man by plugging in the machine to make sure you're getting what you want out of it yeah that's a great way to look at it here's a band that supported their fans taping them and and sharing that right and they were the first band to do that but yet at the same time they were signed to a major record label who they're still part of warner brothers and they were beholden to the man to turn in these you know, studio albums that never sold mm-hmm. as well as their concerts did. So it's almost like they sucked on the teeth that they needed to to keep their business going. But then they put their middle fingers up and said, fuck you, we're going to do what we want. <laughs> yeah, It's like they became much more about the culture and community that they can build around themselves. And in my ethos, the DIY do-it-yourself and sell it directly to your fans, 
that was killer. Like, I love they did that. Oh, by the way, we still have this contract with Warner Brothers and we're still going to make these studio albums, but we don't really care if they sell. And ironically, you know, Touch of Grey, it surely did sell. Yeah. But they kept that DIY spirit the whole time. And I think that's where they connect back to punk, right? Like not necessarily taking the well-traveled path, but instead blazing your own trail and seeing what kind of trouble you can get up to. Right. I think about how the Dead had their own record label. They had their own newsletter. They built their own sound systems. They did direct ticketing. Yeah. All of that before the internet. I mean, they were Fugazi before Fugazi. Right. Can you talk about how they innovated in terms of DIY and direct to fan and how things have changed since then? It's funny you say Fugazi because in my mind, I can't think of the dead and not think of Fugazi. And then personally, when I joined the Violets, one of the other unifying factors between us was we were all obsessed with Fugazi. And we were obsessed with not so much the four guys in the band who we all just thought were amazing. But it was to me, it was here is a guy that came out of the true punk scene in DC, had a label, blew that up because it was like, you know, in true punk fashion, he's just like, you know, this is not what I want anymore. And then he goes to building Fugazi. And I identified much more with Fugazi than I did with Minor Threat. Same here. But to me, they also emulated that each show was a unique experience. They were still very much about the fan and and having a $5 ticket to get in the show. Right. Now, there's something else that they have in common. The Dead, to me, were always about the fans first. And they were the first band that ever did that in such a way that they... Their direct-to-fan ticketing model and the, f- the fact that they sold tickets directly to their fans, and then you marry that with the whole fact that they carved out a place in their stadium shows. Wherever they were, they could be playing a big arena, like a big stadium, or they could be playing a local music hall. There was always a taper section. And no other band could ever have the balls to do that, to basically go back to the promoter or the venue person and say, you're going to let these people come in with the recording gear. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, they never monetized it. They never wanted to ask anybody for a penny from that. And they basically said, you can tape us as long as you share freely. And that has transported into the future. You know, now there's tons of free stuff on the web. A lot of it, like the Live Music Archive and Dime a Dozen, are these international trading circles, if you will, mm-hmm. built out of the ethos that the dead birthed, which was, you know, tape trading circles. It also served to burnish their legacy because they ended up having their entire repertoire uh, recorded as it evolved over 30 years. And, you know, it's interesting. You can look back at Fugazi and Fugazi also have uh, all of their live recordings archived. So it's kind of fascinating. But it really was. And you hit the nail on the head. It was how do you preserve a legacy? Yeah. And it's not so that it's a money grab or a cash grab and it's like, you know, or retelling of a story. It's warts and all and it's we're going to put it out there. And that's why looking at Fagazi and the fact that they did their own live archive, they put it all up there. And to kind of beat the bootleggers, they basically said, we're going to put this all up here. And instead of it being free, and for them, they had to put some money to it, but it was still, I want to say it was like five or six bucks a live show. It was still very low, Mm -hmm. um, but they put it all out there. And as people kept uncovering tapes, they would put it out there. And I wish more bands would think that way. That's why I go back to the dead and say proudly, man, I really admire the dead. And they keep reissuing certain great live shows, or I shouldn't say reissue, they basically take the masters, remix them, and then release them, take what was there, it was free to trade, and they just kind of bump it up. And Springsteen's doing the same thing. He's like taking all these board tapes and other shows that were radio broadcast, 
and they're just tweaking them and making them official. REM just did it with their Live at the BBC set so that the fans that have yet to be made can come to it. And you can't get better than taking care of the fans by looking at what the dead did. And so much of it does originate with the dead in terms of the overall approach and attitude. Of course, the Grateful Dead had to originate somewhere as well, and it always helps to have a scene to work within. But where there isn't a scene, sometimes you have to invent your own. And in the 1960s, the dead did that along with the Merry Pranks and the diggers and their ilk punks do it Mm -hmm. hip-hop artists do it but all of that presupposes that there are conditions that are friendly enough for a scene to coalesce so in 2018 what do you think the essential ingredients are to establishing a thriving music community you know i know david byrne has a great section in his book the book is how music works right yeah yeah there is a whole section in there it's talking exactly about what needs to be there to create a scene my take of it and what you need is a lot of it is you need, this is going to sound silly, but you need teenagers or young adults in a place in their life that they don't know who they are. And therefore they're searching for something inside them and externally. And music is so visceral and so subjective and playing music is so cathartic for people like myself. And I know you, it's like, it's a way that we release. I think if you have a group of usually young adults that are searching for who they are, they bind themselves together because they're all in this community of, hey, yeah, we're for it. If you can add a cause to it, um, you know, the punk that I grew up with in the early to mid 80s was all anti-Reagan. It was all typically based out of California or or New York. um, And it was typically anti-establishment in that sense. It's like, we're not gonna be told what to do. And that mirrors to the scene of the 60s and Haight-Ashbury, where it was truly these people doing the same thing. They were against Vietnam. They were against the powers that be in control. And they're saying, screw you. We don't want this. This is in our world. And God bless them. I wish that we had a major punk movement right now in the States because of Trump and the vicious, just disgusting thought processes that are dumbing down our core values in America. I wish there was this total uprising of punk music. And I don't see it. Well, there may yet be a scene to arise, and whether or not we'd recognize it as such is a bit of a mystery. It's true. Of course, if they archive it well, later on it'll be somebody else's nostalgia and something for new people to be inspired by. It's very true. Once again, at the root level, the base level of all musicians, there's a reason why they create and there's a reason why they make music. To me, that's the beautiful thing about DIY, because the most part, it's not about the money. And another band that I hugely respect is Green Day. And people shit on them all the time, thinking that they were co-opting punk and they co-opted all this stuff. And it's like, if anybody takes time and looks at how long they've been doing music and where they came from, you realize this was their way out. And it wasn't a money grab. Um, It was, this is who we are. We have to play music. And what I love about it, also loving like 80s metal, you know, they were metalheads that that also identified with punk and they kind of married the sounds and then created what they did. But they came up in a scene, which is the Gilman scene, the the Berkeley scene. Yeah. And it's a beautiful thing when those motivations, that fundamental desire to create music really connects with the community of people who want to hear that music and in turn get inspired to make their own. And it's like when the Grateful Dead started not too far from Gilman Street 
hanging around on those same Berkeley streets. You know, when that band got going, they were doing it purely for the love of music and to get their freaky friends dancing. And I don't think any of them really thought about making money for the first couple decades, although they did end up making quite a bit of money. You know, I was wondering, like, if Jerry Garcia was just starting out right now and he came to you for advice on how to get his band off the ground, what would you tell him? Really, it's the same conversation I have, even if it's not a Jerry Garcia, but it's somebody else. I always say two things. One, they need to understand who they are as an artist, because a lot of times in my classes, I have to get them to take the business out of it. Even though it's a music business course and I'm teaching music business, my nurturing nature as an instructor and as a teacher is I want to guide them properly in the business side of things. But even before I can get there, I have to say, stop. You have to tell yourself who you are and you have to identify what you want to do with your art. Identify with what it is, and in tandem with that, too, it's not even a number two yet, it's kind of a 1A, 1B section thing. It's make the best art possible and continually strive to be unique and be the best artist you can be. And the second thing would be don't worry about the business, worry about making sure that you're finding out who your fans are. Because every single thing that I've ever done in the music business has been fan first. That is what makes the social nature of music a beautiful thing and why I'm so passionate about it. Because if you can connect with a fan as a musician, then a business can be built around that. Yeah, just look at The Grateful Dead. I love it. There's something else I had laying around on my hard drive. I really should go through my files more often. I just never know what I'm going to find. Anyway, I think we should do a segment before we get to my buddy Michael Brunetto. Yeah, it's time to... On the short list of punk icons, one lifer stands tall, Henry Rollins. The chiseled drill sergeant of Black Flag and the leader of his own heavy metal slash hardcore hybrid, the Rollins Band. Henry, or Hank as his buddies called him, is a firebrand of spoken word who has toured around the world with just a microphone and his incisive banter. Rollins is also an actor who has appeared in a number of movies and even had his own TV program, The Henry Rollins Show, from 2006 to 2007. Outspoken and always on point, Rollins has established a durable brand that remains true to the punk spirit even as trends come and go. He's also a deadhead. As a member of the Black Flag, he traded tapes and got to know the Grateful Dead road crew. He covered the song Franklin's Tower. He also seems to understand how punk's kill your idols ethos is similar to the vibe within the dead. About punk performances, Rollins once said, It reminds me of when I go see the Grateful Dead and Jerry Garcia would make a mistake and everyone would applaud. Yeah, nice one, fat boy. It's a very friendly environment. After Garcia merged with the Infinite, Rollins offered kind words. Having been lucky enough to see him perform a few times, I always walked away thinking he was a complete player, a musician's musician. Damn, what a sound he had. There's nothing like it anywhere. The warm, intimate glow that surrounds the notes he played and the way they hung in the air. Sometimes you would almost forget to breathe. You were listening so intently. 
Know of an interesting or unusual deadhead to profile? Drop us a line at info at deadtomepod.com. Maybe your pick will be on a future episode. That's info at deadtomepod.com. Just heard a little bit of the band Gaskill covering Black Flag's Nothing Left Inside from their front-to-back recreation of Black Flag's legendary album My War, retitled Our War. And that leads into our conversation with our final guest, Michael Brunetto, who joined Gaskill just for this project. Michael actually watched me become a deadhead in real time, at least over the internet. He's here to talk about what it was like to grow up as a metal kid and a punk rock fan who harbored a secret love for the Grateful Dead. Please join me in welcoming Michael Brunetto. So, Michael, you and I actually met on the internet through a mutual friend, and I seem to recall that we did initially talk about music besides the dead. Do you remember how we kicked off this bromance? (laughs) <laughs> I don't even remember who posted it, but it was something about Faith No More's cover of Easy. That's right. Like you and I just went down this insane rabbit hole to the point where we were, I think we were like a being the tracks together <laughs> and like going back and forth. And it went on for like, geez, like a few hours. It felt like days. Pretty fun, though. Yeah, I guess we can keep Facebook around a little longer. <laughs> it's not just Russian bots and shit posts. I mean, I do my fair share of shit posting too, but... Uh, <laughs> and how? If at the end of the day it ends up with me ending up on your Grateful Dead podcast, I suppose then it was entirely worth it. <laughs> Thanks, Zuck. <laughs> One of the things that we like to do on this show is to get a sense of how people become deadheads, especially if their path to that is a little unconventional. Um, in your case, I'm wondering how it is that a fan and a musician in metal punk and hardcore genres can also be a deadhead like what's your story man Jeez, how long do you have (laughs) when you asked me to do this i got to kind of thinking about it and kind of went through the timeline and i realized like i actually came to the dead really early i got into music as sort of like a thing that i knew i was going to be obsessed with when i was around 10 which was like 87 when like most kids my age i discovered that first guns and roses record right and kind of went okay yeah like this is what i'm into now and then from there, the usual path of Motley Crue and then Metallica of course. and all this other stuff. And weirdly enough, I came to the dead like right after that. I'm going to say it was like 88 or so. All right. And of all places, I read an article on them in Circus, which was... Like, that's a metal magazine. Even in hindsight, that's really weird, you know, considering everything else that was sort of in that magazine at the time. Right. It's sort of like... If you saw the Allman Brothers band in Metal Hammer. Exactly. Like, I had this distinct memory of sort of opening up the magazine and looking at it and just like, what the hell is this? You know, <laughs> like, you know, picture like a two-page spread in the magazine. On the left side, there's sort of the full-page picture of Jerry Garcia. Centerfold. He's playing that, you know, that like beautiful guitar with the tiger on it. 
It's not a BC Rich. Exactly. You know, it doesn't look like anything I've ever seen before. So I was like, oh, like, okay, that's weird. And then, you know, he's kind of like this old paunchy man with a big beard and <laughs> like he had dirt under his fingernails. And, you know, that alone was just really interesting to me. Like, what are these guys doing in here? It's like, who put this scuzzy Santa Claus in my metal magazine? Yeah. And then, you know, you get to the other page and there's the inset picture in the article and it's Bob Weir. He was wearing like a purple polo shirt or something. Hot. You know, like, like, he literally looked like my best friend's dad oh man we call it dead bod yeah and like and not even like in that cool way where you're just sort of like oh yeah my friend's dad's pretty cool like he was like he looked easily as uncool as my friend's dad oh man like i had just started playing music around then so yeah i remember looking at the guitar and it was just like one of these god-awful sort of late 80s modulus guitars they kind of look like these metal strats or something. Yeah, those ugly fuckers. But I just remember looking at that, and I was just like, well, like if they're in here, there's got to be something to this. Like Somebody put them in this magazine with all these <laughs> other bands that I do know for a reason. And So weird. So, you know, I kind of read the article and was just like, oh, that's interesting. Like I hoped at some point I'd get a chance to maybe hear them. Wow, that really is something. You're flipping through this magazine, you see all these guys with their hairsprayed hair and their spandex making pouty faces or making menacing faces. Then you come across a spread with these dudes that look like they're hanging out at a bowling alley or teaching shop class. Yeah, it was really strange, you know, and my sort of path to it was a little atypical because like I didn't have an older brother giving me records. You know, these like there weren't dead records in my parents' record collection. Right. Is, you know, like aside from like a Buffalo Springfield record my dad had, like I was just kind of on my own to discover stuff. So I just saw that and was like, Well, I don't know what this is. You know, it's not like I could drive to the record store. Yeah, but you could hitchhike. <laughs> <laughs> so how did you actually end up hearing them? This is equally as weird. It was on one of those PBS pledge drives. I guess it was a special for PBS. I think it was the live show that was sort of the basis of the Dead Set record. Ah, right. You know, in hindsight, not a terribly good Dead show. True. Not a terribly good record overall, but in the video, it started with an acoustic set, which I remember being intriguing to me. This is sort of before Unplugged. That's right. And just sort of the things that they were playing, you know, looking at them and going like, wow, they're not playing power chords. Yeah. You know, that's interesting to me. Like, I remember watching them doing Franklin's Tower. Like, the chords Jerry was playing, like, those aren't the bar chords I just learned. Like, I was really intrigued by kind of what was there. And, of course, you keep getting interrupted by the nice lady who says things like, call now and receive your free steal-your-face tote bag. <laughs> I don't remember that, but I would not be surprised. <laughs> but I taped it. Well, I had my parents tape it. I'm sure they hated every minute of it, too. Yeah. You know, just like a bunch of dirty hippies twirling around on PBS. Like, it's... Not Masterpiece Theater. You, know, you look back on it and you're just like, wow, like, I can't believe that happened. So if you're some young kid who's just getting into hard rock and heavy metal and you watch this program and you see these older dudes doing an acoustic set that includes a lot of traditional music, like, how do you make sense of that? I don't remember exactly how I felt at the time other than there were like things going on musically that were intriguing to me. But then at the same time, I was like, well, like, you know, they don't really sing that well. Sure, um, yeah. You know, they all kind of look old, and I wasn't so sure about the audience. And, you know, it looked like all those anti-drug videos you ever saw as a kid. <laughs> but actually quite the opposite. Yeah. Like, it was intriguing enough at that point. Not long after that, like, I had a friend that lived down the street. The same person, actually, that gave me the a copy of the Guns N' Roses record. Nice. He had the first Dead album, but I remember he loaned that to me, and I don't remember that really sticking with me, but... Yeah, maybe not the best place to start, but at least the band was on your radar. So, where did you go from there in terms of your overall musical explorations? What was next? Right around after that, it was... 
a little bit deeper into sort of metal. I think like every preteen, I had like a Led Zeppelin phase mm-hmm. and then getting into like Slayer and all that other stuff. And then somewhere between 89 and 90, I definitely heard Jane's Addiction. Now that's a game changer. Which was huge for me. You know, like, that, I mean, that's like my band, you know? Oh yeah, mine too. And no matter how embarrassing they've gotten since their initial run, that original lineup was just killer. And it kind of gave me a feeling that these legendary bands that I've worshipped, like Led Zeppelin and Pink Floyd and whatnot. I've got one of my own, finally. You know, I started on bass, and Eric Avery was, he's to this day sort of like my guy, you know? So, like, whatever they were going to do, like, I was going to be into it, which was especially interesting when I don't remember what year it came out, but there was that Grateful Dead tribute record that they were on. Yeah, dedicated. Them doing Ripple and sort of going like, oh my God. Yeah, it was great. One of their last recordings too. Like, I guess I really, you know, can be into the dead. There was, you know, there's even a quote inside from Eric Avery talking about having sort of a a Grateful Dead past, you know. And Yeah, I read that quote myself like 10,000 times. And their cover of Ripple was good too. Maybe one of those times where a cover is like at least as good as the original one. Like it's just, it was so good. I remember Robert Hunter, one of the Grateful Dead's primary lyricists, talking about how he just adored Jane's Addiction's version of Ripple, which was very validating, I'm sure. But it's interesting. You can actually hear some Grateful Dead influence in Jane's Addiction in general, especially when they get into the more psychedelic and spacey bits, not to mention the fact that Dave Navarro, the band's guitar player, is really fond of the Mixolydian mode, which is uh, something that Jerry Garcia also indulged in frequently for all you guitar nerds out there. <laughs> yeah, you really can. Like, there's, there's kind of a uh, meandering, sounds like a bad way to describe it, but it kind of has that twisty Mixolydian vibe to it that Jerry would kind of do too. You know, Dave Navarro did like a lot of that sort of stuff, especially some of those breaks on Three Days, you know, yeah. that gets a little dead-esque in terms of the guitar part. It does, both in terms of the spaciness and the intensity. And the other awesome part about their cover of Ripple was, and I didn't figure this out till much later, was they quote the other one at the end, and I thought that was really cool too, because they sort of turned it into this like amazing outro. They gave us a little wink at the end. It was real cool, and that was where you can kind of connect that like Dave Navarro, Jerry Garcia set of dots because he is kind of soloing over that other one change. And it sounds Navarro-esque, but it doesn't sound terribly out of place as a thing Jerry Garcia might play. That's totally true. I also think about seeing Jane's Addiction in 1990 and 91, and the audience was an almost perfect blend of the underground. There were like goths and punks and bikers and druggies and drama club kids and even deadheads in whatever combination. And it seemed kind of rare to me at the time because back then folks were usually more siloed in terms of what they liked and what shows they went to. So did you get pulled into the larger dead or jam band scene? Or if you're looking at the sort of metal and punk scenes, do you see them as different or similar to what you observed with the deadheads? Um, There definitely wasn't any dead scene that I was part of. I mean, the people that listened to the dead where I went to school weren't really people that I wanted to be friends with or particularly liked all that much. Yeah, I had a similar experience with those kids, I think. Yeah, for what it's worth, it kind of struck me more as like rich kids of parents who used to follow the dead and would kind of just put a 
a lot of money in the kid's pocket and let them kind of go out and follow the dead around during summer vacation or something. Right. Like they just weren't people I hung around with. You know, sometimes it seemed like it was more about the partying and less about the music, which was weird to me because the kids that I did hang out with were all music obsessives. When I look at the deadheads that were coming into it from my generation at the time, it seemed like there were a lot of thrill-seeking looky-loos. I was definitely not talking about guitar solos with any of those people. I don't think they cared. Yep. If they weren't partying out in the lot at a dead show, they would have just been partying somewhere else. You know, I definitely hung out more with all the metalheads and the punk rock and hardcore kids that I knew in school. And I would never have told them I listened to the dead. I would have had my ass kicked. Oh, man. Be best. But what about the similarities on a musical level? The Dead did kind of start off as almost a noise rock band, and there seemed to be an affinity with that first wave of New York City punks. Patti Smith was a fan, and if I listen to a band like Television, it sometimes sounds like punks interpreting Dark Star. And eventually that stuff influences the next wave of hardcore bands like Black Flag on the West Coast. And the architect of that band, Greg Ginn, was a huge deadhead who saw something like 100 shows. He was definitely a big deadhead. It was one of those things where I read it and I was just like, oh, yeah, like, I can see that. <laughs> Everyone else was like so surprised that their punk rock hero was actually a stinking hippie. But you were like, no, I dig. Yeah. <laughs> and you've got a connection there, too. You were part of a project with the band Gaskill where you guys covered Black Flag's My War from front to back. So I'm wondering, what was that experience like? Did that help you sort of see any similarities between Ginn and Garcia as guitarists? It really did, actually, you know, because it was one of those projects where, you know, I got invited to do this thing and I spent just hours and hours and hours pouring over that record and live versions of it. You know, it was very important to me to sort of get that Greg Ginn vibe and yeah. to really kind of play it as close as I could, to like, you know, just get that, that style down. So you basically reverse engineered his approach to playing. I did. And one of the things that sort of came to light for me was you know, they had similar tastes in jazz and especially free jazz. And, mm -hmm. you know, Jerry does a lot of these sort of passing chromatic notes, but he'll be playing something sort of melodic. Whereas, you know, Greg Ginn sort of took that one little slice and sort of turned that entire thing into his... You know, it's kind of like soloing ethos. Right. One guy is more consonant and the other is more atonal. But it's interesting that you were able to intuit a connection. It definitely made a lot of sense. But it made sense to me before I started kind of working my way through that record in order to record it. It was, oh yeah, okay. He's definitely a deadhead. Like, I, I totally get it now. That's awesome. So we are able to establish some musical link between the dead and punk rock. And it's through Black Flag, of all things. And then there's metal. Obviously, that's a huge genre for you, and it was for me, too. Now, I'd never call The Dead a metal band, but their jams could take some menacing turns almost out of nowhere. We referenced the song The Other One when we touched on Jane's Addiction. Now, that song in particular could get really heavy as it evolved over the years. Yeah, it's almost like this weird nod to Black Sabbath or something in the bass. Entering the fill zone. There was a period there, especially in that like that European tour, where he was leading off the other one, and his bass sound was just like you know, almost Geezer Butler esque. It was very big, it had like this little bit of a crunch to it, which you know you don't normally associate with sort of twirly hippie music, but you know there it was. <laughs> I think it might have been that four foot wide fur guitar strap he was rocking around that time. <laughs> <laughs> the furry guitar strap makes for some extra hairy jam. 
rooms. We talk about Phil Lesh a lot on this show. I mean, he may look like a high school guidance counselor, but that dude definitely rides the lightning. (laughs) The whole group, actually. A lot of people talk about Jimi Hendrix and incorporating feedback, but as far as, you know, feedback in a group ensemble, I wouldn't be surprised if secretly maybe some of the Sonic Youth guys were checking out some of that aspect of the dead, too. Right. I mean, we know Lee Ronaldo from Sonic Youth is definitely a fan. And you go back to an album like Anthem of the Sun and the song Don't Step on the Tracks, it's barely controlled feedback. I mean, that whole record is just like a mindfuck. That was actually, I think, the next Dead record I did check out. Like the idea that they had sort of just taken all of these versions of the other one, like live recordings, and then just sort of patched them all together. Yeah kind of weaved him into this final song. Like, that was definitely one of those things that was super appealing to me, especially as I was kind of getting into, like, Bitches Brew era Miles at the same time, and a lot of those records were kind of done the same way. Yeah, just crazy layering. It was also really difficult to do those kinds of audio operations back in the day with a reel-to-reel tape. I can't even imagine what the label probably thought of that when they handed it over. Like, <laughs> I think we actually have a pretty good idea what Warner Brothers thought of it. He has a really big bill, and then this, just this unlistenable, like, monolith of a record (laughs) it's like hey suits enjoy the whole thing is so disorienting i think that was actually where it kind of clicked for me after the circus article and the pbs thing and that you know i understand why this is the thing that it is you know it's interesting both of us coming from punk and hardcore scenes and developing this love for the grateful dead but neither of us ever saw them live in concert yeah i never got to see them live closest i got was i had a friend who did see them on that last tour and bought some acid in the parking lot and i did get to take that acid so In a way, I, I, maybe I was kind of there. That's like taking a quaalude from the closing night of Studio 54. <laughs> Weirdly enough, too, the day that Jerry died, I actually I was working in a print shop on the Cape, and I had no idea he had even died, and I had worn a Grateful Dead shirt to work that day. Ah. I used to wear it to school a lot because everyone sort of had me pegged as like the long-haired metal kid, and then every once in a while, I would just whip out this tie-dye. <laughs> Keep them guessing. You know, the Grateful Dead, man, like... So many skulls, like that's super metal. (laughs) It is indeed. It is very metal. I mean, the word dead is in the name of the band, so... (laughs) Look, I just want to say that I really appreciate you bearing witness to my weird evolution into becoming a deadhead. Oh, you were a goner. (laughs) (laughs) I was feeling awkward and embarrassed about the transition. But since we have a similar background here, I was impressed by your courage in admitting that you loved this band. I guess you're like an inspiration, Michael. (laughs) Oh, thanks. I think my almost exact words were like, it's going to be okay, man. It's okay to like the dead. Yeah. All right, friends, that just about wraps it up for this edition of Dead to Me. Be sure to check out our next episode with guitarist Neil Casal of the Chris Robinson Brotherhood and Circles Around the Sun. Dead to Me is a Chunky Glasses production on the Osiris Podcast Network, recorded in Washington, D.C. with hosts Casey Ray and Eduardo Nunes, executive producer Kevin Hill. See you next time. <laughs>